Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending where you are in the world. This is Jeremiah Hosea. You're tuned into PRN.live. This program is called The Baseline, and I'm really, really glad that you tuned in today. This is a very important episode. Of course, I take great pleasure in all of my shows, and I take great pride in what we've done in these first four editions of my program. But today is, I don't want to... Uh, diminish anything we've done up until now, but today is a very special program because we're dealing with um, some really specific information that the listener really needs to be introduced to if you haven't been already. And we need to get the word out in regard to a very important article that was written by the guest I'm about to introduce. And Dr. Merrill Nass who I'm so honored to have on this program, I can hardly put it into words, is the author of an incredible article called The WHO, meaning the WHO, the World Health Organization, proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics. And she's done an incredible amount of research. She brings great technical expertise. And it's really my honor and my pleasure to introduce the great Dr. Merrill Nass. Are you on the air with us, Dr. Nass? I am. Oh, Hello. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I also want to say Dr. Nass is really a champion of the people because she doesn't know who I am in particular. I left a message under her Substack article. She kindly got back to me. And here she is on the People's Airwaves, on the Progressive Radio Network. And um, it's such an honor to have you here, Dr. Nass. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, glad to be here. I've always loved PRN. Excellent. Well, I want to get right into it because you've written an unbelievable article. I completed it, uh, reading it this morning. Um, I need to read it again and probably a third or a fourth time. It's very dense. It's very rich, full of information, and it covers a variety of different sort of subtopics in an overarching picture that you paint. Can you give us a a primer about your article that you just completed? Could you tell us what compelled you to write this article? And and just without trying to recapitulate the entire thing, because obviously it's a very detailed article, and sorry, folks, you're going to have to take the time to read the article, do your own research, as we've, of course, been discouraged from doing. But I'm going to ask you to do your own research and please read this article. But in the meantime, Dr. Nass, can you give us a a primer about this incredible article that you completed and and what compelled you to write it, please? (laughs) Thanks. So um, I've been studying what how the WHO has been co-opted to basically assist the globalists in taking over sovereignty of the nations of the world by issuing public health, what used to be recommendations, but are proposed to be orders. So the WHO will be able to declare a pandemic and then tell nations what they have to do. Um, Using amendments to the international health regulations that already exist but are recommendations now what but will become orders once the nations agree to this next may at the next who meeting there's also a proposed pandemic treaty that the who and its member states have developed so there are drafts of these documents we're not at the final draft yet but the newest draft of the pandemic treaty which was released in june um i read carefully and 
because I have a background in pandemics and biological warfare, I think I understood it better than, than people who don't. And so I understood that the language was being used to hide things and that, in fact, the treaty was incentivizing the development of new dangerous pandemic viruses and bacteria, potential pandemic pathogens is the terminology they use. And it is directing nations to go out and swab their animals and their people and their wastewater to try and find all the time to perform surveillance to find potential pandemic pathogens, which are potential biological warfare agents that against humans, animals, or plants. And when they find them, they are directed to share them globally. So as Del Bigtree pointed out, this is open source biological warfare. And that's what the treaty actually says. And it has a lot of other very bad provisions. Um, it, it wants to roll out vaccines very fast once a pandemic is declared. And um, it wants to the nations and the manufacturers of these vaccines not to have any liability. So, <clears throat> uh, there, there, again, there's, there's much more to the treaty than that. The treaty is about 30 pages long. When I read it, I decided, you know, I have to explain this to people because it was so unbelievable. You know, a, a treaty that's supposed to be protecting us from biological weapons is actually asking nations to, to create. It, it's incentivizing gain-of-function research, which is another term for biological weapons. And it tells nations, if you happen to be doing gain-of-function research, then um, do it as safely as you can. Use international standards, which, of course, they do, but at the same time, reduce the, quote-unquote, administrative impediments, unquote, to this work. So basically, they're saying, well, do it right, but make it really easy to do, which, of course, is making it even less safe if you're making it easy, because it's not easy. You know, you need special air handling. People need to be wearing moon suits when they do it, et cetera. Um, so these, these are just crazy provisions, and in fact, they go against existing biological weapons treaties and existing um, Security Council resolution and other things. But almost nobody knows about those documents. So because I have this very long background in the field, I do. So I decided I have to write something. So I started writing, wrote a blog post, and then I thought, okay, I have to write an article. So I started writing an article. And then I, you know, it hit me that this is so important, and we have a lot of background information to contextualize what's going on, that what I really needed to do was provide the history and the context. And so that took a very short article and made it a very long article, but at the same time, very convincing and complete, because now, you know, there's about 150 links, you know, footnotes, basically, and... Um, people can click on them and find out that, yeah, what I'm saying is absolutely true. Here's the background. This is how, um, you know, people of the world have been dealing with biological and chemical weapons for 100 years. And this is how we are basically getting away from the standards that were in place and um, entering a new, you know, wild west of biological weapons. It, the, the paper also 
just goes into some background that, again, I happen to be particularly familiar with um, because the monkeypox vaccines were originally developed as smallpox vaccines. And so in my, I have this field of, of uh, biological weapons and vaccines against biological weapons. I'm an expert in the anthrax vaccine. Um, I also had studied the smallpox vaccines, and so I knew what their dangers were, what the published literature had shown. And these two vaccines, one is called ACAM2000 and one is named Genios, are licensed in the U.S., and they were rolled out to prevent monkeypox. And we were told initially monkeypox had a 10% mortality rate. It turned out that monkeypox was a very mild illness in anybody unless they were severely immunocompromised, such as late-stage AIDS. And it was mostly a few little skin eruptions, like pimples, which would last. It was essentially a disease like shingles, but less, probably less severe than most people's shingles cases. And for this, we're giving people vaccines that cause myocarditis. So the smallpox vaccines were the first ones where it was acknowledged that myocarditis was a common side effect. The COVID vaccines were the second to cause this very potentially serious, life-threatening side effect. And so I pointed out what was known about these vaccines, and yet they were recommended for this, what turned out to be a very mild disease, monkeypox. And, you know, our federal agencies are still trying to push them out to the gay population as much as they can. Um, and I pointed out that the COVID vaccines also cause myocarditis and that the federal agencies know all about this, that the risk benefit from these two classes of vaccines, the, the smallpox, monkeypox vaccines on the one hand and the three COVID vaccines that are currently available in the U.S. Well, I shouldn't say currently because the Novavax may, vaccine may have gone away on, uh, on Tuesday or Monday of this week. Um, but the three that were available when I wrote the paper which was Novavax, Moderna, and Pfizer, you know, all are known to cause myocarditis. So why is the government pushing people to get vaccines that can cause a, a chronic, many people, so somewhere between a third and a half of the people who develop myocarditis that we know about continue to have cardiac inflammation that's six months or nine months later. So it's, it's a persisting risk of a potentially life-ending cardiac arrhythmia as a result of this, particularly during strenuous exercise when adrenaline is, is coursing through your bloodstream. So why would the government take young people and who the, the 12 to 40 age group is the age group that is at much most high risk of myocarditis and why and and at very low risk from covid and from monkeypox why are our governments pushing these vaccines onto this population and and the answer is the government is not trying to help us i mean unfortunately there's other way of uh, interpreting the data than that the government is trying to harm us and and what does that mean so i sort of tried to pull a lot of these threads together and make it clear to people what's been going on during the pandemic, um, what, what do these current vaccines do, and now 
you know, the WHO and the world governments are making plans for lots more of these rushed out vaccines. And why should we trust them when the other, you know, monkeypox is a declared, was a declared pandemic by the WHO, as was COVID. And the vaccines for those five vaccines for them are all dangerous, barely helpful for a short. In fact, it's not even clear if the monkeypox vaccines work. They did not prevent monkeypox in the monkeys in whom they were tested. And many, many people who have received them have still gotten monkeypox. So they may be ineffective. They certainly are known to cause inflammation of the heart. And the COVID vaccines, you know, we've just rolled out the third version this week of COVID vaccines, um, which were rolled out essentially without human data. There is no human data on the safety of this current new COVID vaccine that is only now available as of yesterday in the U.S. So I would advise people not to get it. I'd love everybody to glance at my article, and it may help you make a lot of sense of the last three years. Right. Well, thank you for that great overview. And when I reached out to Dr. Nass, I said in, you know, in, in, uh, my enthusiasm for my inter- for the interview that she had conducted or that uh, Dell Bigtree conducted with Dr. Nass, I was so impressed by um, your poise and your astute quality and, and just your knowledge. And I think that what you're saying is so important that the analogy I use is if the medical freedom movement were a baseball season, this is the part of the season where Dr. Nass started playing MVP level ball. Like, I think everybody needs to really pay attention to what she's saying for the simple fact that we've all been manhandled by our government and by this, whatever it is exactly, is not perfectly clear. This this um, World Economic Forum, WHO agenda, we're all getting sort of manhandled and pushed around and there's clearly more to come. And it's just so empowering that this article gives us some really solid information uh, to at least start getting our bearings about what to expect. But of course, the unfortunate thing is, is that while many people have said, oh, I'm exhausted, I can't take this anymore. Well, it's too bad because that's not even the first quarter of the ball game, I don't think. There's a lot more of this to come. And I would like to ask you, Dr. Nass, um, in terms of the mRNA platform in general, um, We've seen, like you mentioned, these incredible uh, rates of myocarditis increasing. We have Dr. Peter McCullough, leading cardiologist or the, the most published cardiologist in history, has been screaming from the mountaintop to not administer these shots anymore. Dr. Asim Malhotra in the UK had the misfortune of taking the shot and then realizing that uh, it was quite harmful when his father died of a heart attack. So we have two leading cardiologists and others, but those two, for example, who have gone on tour telling people this stuff is dangerous. It seems to me just a very abstract thing to claim that those gentlemen are lying or doing that for attention. Like what is going on in the world that we're ignoring red alerts from cardiologists? And why is the public not more offended about even suggesting that heart injury is mild in any case? I mean, I believe 
Anthony Fauci himself said, well, in most cases, the myocarditis is mild. But yeah, we don't want to be subjected to myocarditis at all, Dr. Fauci, and least of all having our children subjected to such a thing. So what's going on in, in this atmosphere where we're just plainly ignoring doctors and specifically cardiologists? Well, as you know, um, the censorship and propaganda that we've been subjected to these last three and a half years has been over the top. We've never seen anything like it before. And much of it has been directed by the federal government um, and carried out through social media so that we have very few channels where people like doctors Malhotra and um, McCullough can be heard. People who listen to mainstream channels will never hear them because they are being censored. I think the other thing is that the enormity of the crime that has been committed against the people is is so huge that most people cannot. They do lack the capacity to take it in. It's such a huge crime. The big lie, you know, as the the Hitler folks said, the big lie is, is likely to be more successful than a small lie because people cannot imagine that such a huge lie will be perpetrated on them. You know, people, uh, you and I probably have trouble believing that so many things we were taught, almost the whole story of the United States of America, you know, and what our country has actually done in the world is is a false narrative. Right. So to believe, you know, it, it's hard. You have to rethink your entire life. And many people don't have the, the emotional wherewithal to do that. Great point. That is a great point. So let me ask you your opinion about mRNA as a platform in general. Am I mistaken in my understanding of this? Because it seems that Dr. Robert Malone, and one of the most puzzling things to me about Dr. Malone, and I've been very impressed with a lot of his comments. I'm so confused as to why he took uh, an mRNA injection, or I think he took a, a Moderna shot. I think his explanation was that he wanted to see if it would help him with his long COVID symptoms. Um, so I find it a little strange that he took the shot when he also was one of the leading voices in warning people about the dangers of mRNA. And it seems that what he said yeah, is that. So, but is it true so that basically I, I that, know, that the same problems have persisted, have the same problems, safety problems persisted since the beginning? Like it seems that he's proposed that there are unresolved safety problems, that there are known safety problems, and no one has even attempted to explain how those problems have been resolved, yet they're pushing this on the public. Yeah. So first thing to know about Robert Malone, he's really smart. Absolutely. And he did create a messenger RNA as a vaccine. So he came up with that idea in his 20s while he was a graduate student. He's now in his 60s. And he has not worked on messenger RNA for decades, but he's worked on other medical problems. He's a physician, but he was basically doing lab work and research. And um, he was very familiar. He had worked closely with the NIH and the FDA. McCullough also had worked closely with the FDA. And, And I haven't worked with the FDA. I've worked against them. You know, I've worked on the anthrax vaccine. So the three of us we're very familiar with the processes FDA has to go through to approve the use of a vaccine or a drug. And so Malone got his shots pretty early on, you know, the very beginning of 2021. And he assumed 
that the FDA had gone, you know, we were told this is the, the most, um, you know, detailed safety process in the history of pharmaceuticals. They're still saying that. The CDC and FDA claim that they've done more safety studies on these um, COVID vaccines than on any other product in history. Well, that's a lie. They haven't. And so, um, you know, but we thought, it was against the law to roll out a product with the kind of data that the, the FDA and CDC were, had available to them. And then we found later that much of it was actually fudged data that, you know, the, the lab that Pfizer was using as its central laboratory turned out to be Pfizer itself. You know, they were determining who had a positive PCR test, for example. And so they could make sure that the right people had positive tests and negative tests to come up with this, you know, 90, 95% efficacy that they claimed in the beginning. All right. So, so Malone did not know, he had no idea that he was getting a garbage product and then, and he was sick from COVID and then he was sicker from the vaccine and it made him angry. And because he knew how they were supposed to be made and he knew something about what he had done originally and gotten buttons for, he started speaking out in 2021. And uh, so, or it may have been early 2022. I have to think about that, but I think it was 2021. I, th- I think it goes back to 2021, um, yeah. Anyway, so so that's him, and I think we, we need to listen to what he says. I have, I have a few different ideas about the messenger RNA vaccines. I think that the, and, and I think, and he would agree with me on this, this one, which is that when you're injecting people with messenger RNA, that's not your product. Your product is the protein that the messenger RNA directs your cells to make. And you don't know how much of that protein is going to be produced because you don't know how many cells it's going to get into and what each cell is going to do, how long it's going to last. There, There were changes made to the messenger RNA to make it last a very long time. And yet the FDA has a standard of potency where it needs it um, until recently required you know manufacturers to tell it how much of the active ingredient are you going to have in your product or are you going to produce you you can't that cannot be ascertained for the mrna vaccines so based on potency you know one person can make a thousand times more than the next person and we don't we can't predict who's going to do what so it shouldn't be approved on that basis alone But I have another issue with the messenger RNA vaccines, which is that the messenger RNA breaks down very rapidly. So probably at least half of what's in the vaccine you receive are bits of messenger RNA that have been degraded since they were manufactured. Well, think about it. You've got millions of different sizes and shapes of, you know, messenger RNA in that vial, and nobody can tell exactly what they are they're going to be different in every vial and there's only a little bit of each and so a an evil entity has the potential to put in there other pieces of messenger rna that aren't necessarily you know to make spike protein or to make another vaccine product but could be there to harm you you know you could you could be injecting a little bit of messenger rna to produce toxins of various kinds and there's no real way known to science to identify all of the millions of different breakdown products of the messenger RNA in the vials. So to me, it's an unsafe platform. It's a platform that can 
easily be co-opted to harm people and hide the harm within this morass of different bits of breakdown messenger RNA. So I don't think mRNA should be used for any products. Now, Wolfgang Wodarg told me yesterday that there are over 130 different messenger RNA vaccines that companies are producing that are in a pipeline to be authorized or licensed. And, you know, in my world, none of them should be. And we have to watch out for that because that's what's coming next. You know, there's a, there's a messenger RNA RSV vaccine in the pipeline, flu vaccines, and others. Um, apparently, it's a relatively cheap way to make vaccines. It's a quick way to make vaccines. And as I said, it may be a quick way to harm people uh, without us being able to detect the harm until it's too late. Right. Now, <clears throat> one thing that I've heard, and it, it appears to be true, is that these novel, quote-unquote, vaccines seem to have the widest side effects profile of any medication I've ever seen or heard of. I mean, when the Pfizer documents were released, there was pages and pages. I think the total was 1,291 different side effects, all kinds of different types of thrombosis, all different kinds of autoimmune disorders, so on and so on and so on and so on, including, I believe, covid is one of the sim one of the side effects yeah, we find well, crazy. You see, well, that's, that's a collection of codes that, you know, doctors and coding specialists have made. Hmm. So whenever you bill, you know, whenever a doctor bills for a visit, either an outpatient visit or a hospital visit, they, they have to identify diagnoses. So it's sort of a random process. And... Um, the powers that be, which are the CDC and the WHO, expanded the number of codes that exist. So we used to have about 14,000 possible codes for diagnoses, but about 15 years ago, they created 70,000 crazy codes. Wow. And, and I think the idea was probably, you know, now looking back at what's happened, the idea was probably to have, you know, people coding the same condition with a lot of different codes, which would make it harder to, uh, to, you know, put them all together and count up. And, and what we know happened, there was a paper published by a, a woman named N Nicola Klein, who is a, 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 the top vaccine researcher at Kaiser Permanente. She's located in Oakland, California. Um, she's worked on vaccines for 20 or 30 years. And um, she published a paper and has spoken out at these FDA and CDC meetings saying that there's no increased levels of myocarditis from the COVID vaccine. And another doctor named Katie Scharf wrote a, and published a paper and pointed out that she was only using about half the myocarditis codes. And when she added additional codes and did some other things to collect all the cases, then there were, in fact, you know, many cases being caused by the COVID vaccine. So anyway... Um, as COVID, the COVID vaccine, according to VAERS, VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It is an official system of the United States government jointly run by CDC and FDA. It's been around since 1990 as a result of a, of a congressional bill that was passed, the Vaccine Injury Act of 1986. And anyone can input information into this system reporting on their injury or the injury of someone else they know. So doctors 
families, nurses who have friends can put information into this system. And there have been more reports of deaths from the COVID vaccines input into this system than for all other vaccines used in the United States over the, since 1990. So okay. if you compare just COVID deaths to all deaths from all other, other vaccines for over 30 years, there's more reports of COVID deaths. And if you look at the injuries, there's well over a million injuries that have in Americans that have been reported to this VAERS system. Now, there are many other, there are about 20 other databases that are used by CDC and FDA to assess injuries that may be due to vaccines. Almost all their data has been hidden from the public. So we're paying for for them to access other databases. But we don't have access to that information, which would be um, possibly more objective than the VAERS system because VAERS, anyone can, you know, input whatever they want to, whereas these other systems um, are hospital records, um, VA records, military medical databases, things like that, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. So, um, you, you know, the public doesn't have any ability to um, influence those databases. There was also the incredible uh, release of the V-safe data, which I thought would have been a bigger deal, but I thought a lot of things would have been a bigger deal by now. It, it's such a strange... Yeah, the, the V-safe data is being interpreted by people like Nicola Klein, who know how to minimize um, the effects, the adverse effects of the vaccine. Right. So let me ask you, in your assessment, and this is kind of a grand question, but hopefully your expertise could guide us a little bit here, which is where do you think we stand globally? What were the what, what would be your general statement in terms of the overall health impacts, dare I say, globally and nationally now that these products have been administered so vastly to whatever percentage of the population, over 50 percent, I don't know what the final claim is. And of course, there's all these ways of saying someone, you know, not vaccinated if they haven't received X number of boosters. But in terms of people who received at least the initial series and then some people have received more shots, where do we stand in terms of health? These products seem to me very, I mean, initially, I'll tell you, first of all, myself, I didn't want to get vaccinated based on a general body autonomy principle. I thought the whole thing was too rushed. I don't like being coerced into any sort of procedure such as this. So the whole thing felt very wrong. But I was not expecting the products to be so harmful. And as I've researched it, it seems to me these products are incredibly harmful. So where do you think we stand? How much damage has been inflicted? And what can we look forward to, unfortunately? Okay, so the, the quick answer is we don't know because the feds aren't sharing what they know with us. Um, so all we have is limited really limited data on myocarditis. And I showed that there was some additional data. If you go back to this monkeypox vaccine, ACAM2000, um, even the CDC admits that one in 175 people who received that vaccine for the first time developed 
abs- my, frank myocarditis. When I say frank, I mean they had the symptoms of it. They had the lab tests. The, you know, they had the echocardiogram. They had the elevated troponin. They had clear myocarditis, one in 175. And if you looked at only those people who had elevated cardiac enzymes at twice the upper limit of normal, one in 30. And these, this was from a 1,000 military soldiers, with mostly men but some women, who received that vaccine back around 2003 to 2004. Um, so one in 30 got cardiac inflammation, and one in 175 had clear myocarditis. That's, those are big numbers for a very potentially dangerous drug that you're giving to young people. You know, a average age was probably about 20 in that study. So we've got really good data from that. We don't have similar data for the COVID vaccine that we could rely on. Um, so I can't tell you how many people got a vaccine that was basically, you know, a, a placebo or was not harmful, and how many got a drug, a vaccine that was harmful? I do not know. Um, what we do know is that there's a lot more excess, you know, sudden deaths, which are mostly deaths from arrhythmias, and probably most of those are myocarditis-related, but I can't prove it without an autopsy. Do you have anything to say uh, about the cancer link? There, there are people like Dr. Ryan Cole. You know, so we have individual doctors like Ryan Cole, who I think is wonderful, very brilliant guy, who is a pathologist and is seeing a lot more cancer. We have a, a number of doctors seeing a lot more cancer. In my practice, I wasn't seeing more cancer. You know, before my license got suspended in, in January of last year, so, again, the feds are not giving us the data to find this out. We could probably get data at the state level if some of the states, if the politicians at the state level, governors and attorney generals and heads of health departments, would share what they have. Um, we could figure a lot of this out, but so far they have not. Um, a, a friend of mine has all the death certificates uh, for about the last 10 years from Massachusetts. And he's shown that the deaths from kidney failure skyrocketed. Um, and those are probably, some of them are related to remdesivir that mm-hmm. was used as a treatment for COVID. Um, so the feds are hanging on to their data. I mean, they, don't, they, they are scared to death. You know, when this thing opens up and we find out what they've done to us, you know, peep, there will be, the pitchforks are going to come out. If, if people so are strong enough to carry them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> At least people like you, you and me. But w- what we also need to do is fight against the WHO and fight against our own governments that may try to impose mandates in the future and may try to restrict the drugs we actually can use if new pandemics do appear or if you know biological warfare agents are, le- are released on the public. So you um, mentioned, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just want, we, we do take calls on this program, and I would love to leave a little bit of time for a call or two at the end, maybe three. But um, I wanted an update from you pertaining to what you just mentioned, which is your struggle with the, what is it, the Maine Medical, the Medical Board of Maine. You've been 
um, attacked unfairly. I mean, obviously, I'm very partial to you, Dr. Nass, but from your description and from all I've read, I mean, it just seems absolutely outrageous what's been done to you as a accomplished, respected professional in your field, and then out of nowhere, you're getting this attack. And I don't want to try to uh, recapitulate what I remember as far as the criteria for the suspension of someone's medical license, but you met none of the criteria, as you pointed out. So they just arbitrarily decided they don't want you to practice medicine when there's no justifiable basis for that whatsoever. Can you give us an update about your situation and okay. a little bit of what you've been through? Um, so let me finish what I was about to say before, yes. which is that what happened to us during the pandemic was in part a result of emergency laws that we allowed to get passed by our legislatures at the state level after 2001, right. after the anthrax letters. Mm. And so the governors were given basically dictatorial powers to impose mandates and other things on us. The, the, the federal government doesn't really have those powers. Um, and public health is run at the level of the states rather than the federal government because of the Constitution. So. What we need to do is revoke all these laws that give states tremendous emergency. Then there are some laws at the federal level that do that as well, like the PREP Act, which allowed for the first time drugs that weren't licensed to be rolled out en masse with no data. So that's how all the COVID vaccines were rolled out as the EUAs and the PCR tests as EUAs and, the, and most of the drugs that were used, if not all, for COVID initially. So we want to get rid of the PrEP Act and the EUAs. Now, we also want to stop the WHO from being able to issue orders about how countries are to handle pandemics. And to do that, we should exit the WHO and defund the WHO. And there are there is a bit, there are a couple of bills in Congress. And probably the best one is HR 79. And 51 congressmen, all of whom are Republicans, congressmen and women, have co-sponsored it. And it says get out of the WHO and defund it. Um, because of the sovereignty issues, because of uh, WHO promoting sex education in young, very young children and for other reasons. So uh, listeners should really consider calling their congressmen and senators and telling them that they need to support this bill. There's, there's two other bills that require that the pandemic treaty, which is designed to impose, um, you know, impose more biological warfare products on us and digital IDs and, you know, all sorts of dreadful things. So that has to go through Senate ratification, but the Biden administration cannot just sign off on it as, as planned because we can, pro we can likely prevent it from being ratified at the, uh, by the Senate. So those are important things that everyone can do and demand the, that no, at no time in the future can the FDA, CDC, NIH, or any other federal agency restrict the drugs that you will have access to in the event of a pandemic or any other time. If there's a licensed drug out there, you should be able to get it. Um, the law is that your physician can, use, can prescribe any licensed drug for a patient for anything that the physician and the patient agree you know, is a good idea. So you need to maintain that right as a patient. Now, uh, my license was immediately suspended because I was prescribing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because I was talking about bad things, you know, bad aspects of the vaccine program and uh, for, you know, those reasons. 
and it's been suspended for 20 months. And um, when the board realized I was going to fight back and um, I knew something about medical legal law, they then dropped all those charges against me because all they they couldn't stand up in a court of law. You know, it was legal for me to prescribe those drugs. It was legal for me to say whatever I wanted about the vaccine. We have the First Amendment freedom of speech. So then they made up some new charges that I did a bad job on three different patients. They never interviewed the patients. They subpoenaed the records. They said, oh, well, the records are not good enough. Um, when they, they had a hearing, the patients all said, no, she did a great job. We're very satisfied. Um, and so on Tuesday week, the medical board will hear closing arguments from my attorney and from the um, assistant attorney general of the state. Um, and then they will revoke my license or impose a penalty and give it back. We don't know. But we've also sued the board for malicious prosecution since I actually did not do any. I didn't break any laws, rules or regulations. I didn't do anything wrong. I've never had a malpractice case. I've never had a board action before, you know, and my care was uh, was very good. So we'll see what happens. But um, we're, the war isn't over. You know, there's much more to come. And I think, you know, from my research, you know, really the globalists are co-opting healthcare as a means to take to gain more power and more control over the world. And uh, it's our job, you know, if we value freedom and our children, it's our job to stop that. I totally agree. I totally agree. So we have one outstanding caller on the line. And I want to ask today, could we please try to be concise for all the callers in general? I, I love when we get to wax philosophic a little bit extra, but today I would prefer if we just have a question for Dr. Nass, because like I said, she's hitting home runs for all of us. And uh, your assignment is to go to her substack, Merrill, M-E-R-Y-L, or R, M-E-R-Y-L, right? Not, not, uh, Yes, not the other way as well. And on September 3rd, you will find this um, long article. It'll take you 20 or 30 minutes to read, but you will come away from that experience with a whole lot of information that you can use to save your family and your friends from any more destruction. Exactly. So please go to Merrill Nass's Substack, N-A-S-S, and make sure you read that article, forward it to as many people as possible, take your time reading it, read it again, read it a third time. It's really important. And we have Phil on the line from California. How's it going today, Phil? Oh, glorious, uh, Jeremiah. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, it's a pleasure. Good to hear from you. What do you have for us today? Uh, well, uh, firstly, I want to just express my gratitude to you and to Dr. Merrill Nass. Um, I think she's a national hero. Uh, I admire you so much, Dr. Nass. Um, I first heard about you speaking with Dr. Gary Null, uh, talking about the um, so-called pandemic treaty. And then I heard you speak at the uh, International COVID Summit uh, 3 in Brussels. And I really just admire much, very much appreciate your comments there. And so I guess my question to you would be, you know, this this conversation uh, addressed your article, which I read. And by the way, for listeners, 
working class listeners like myself, I try to read it in my 10 minute break. I couldn't. And then I realized that with the Substack app, there's a play button. So you can press play. And it sounds like an AI generated voice or something, but you can listen to the article, which is very helpful for many working class listeners like myself. And then go home and definitely read it because the links in there and all the sources are very important to follow up on as well. But I wanted to put that out there. But Dr. Nass, I was wondering if you could speak more to the to, to the political aspects of where we stand as far as the passing of the pandemic treaty and the international health regulations, and also um, what we can do about it to stop it as far as petitions or actions we can take. And then finally, if, you, if there's time, I wondered if you can if you can speak to the connection between 9/11 to COVID. And in your article, you did talk about the history of weapons of mass destruction, uh, biological chemical weapons. I used to work with Abby Martin on Media Roots, and uh, you know we did reporting on the anthrax attacks and how that um, was a final kind of uh, catalyst that was needed to get the whole war on terror thing going and then also roll back constitutional rights and impose what uh, Dr. Sheldon S. Wollen calls advanced this inverted totalitarianism, soft power approach of, of uh, curtailing our constitutional and human rights. But um, yeah, so I was wondering if you can speak to the, the pandemic treaty, the international health regulations changes, where that stands legally, and then what we can do, and then if possible, if you could speak to this connection 9-11 the COVID uh, connection. Thank you, and I'll listen off air. Thanks, Phil. Hey, thank you. Um, so, so there are two separate documents that the WHO and its members have created, and the United States was central in this process. And um, this is a means to basically use the idea of public health and to use the fear of pandemics uh, for globalist organizations to gain more power. And so these two documents are complementary. There's a bit that overlaps, but they encourage gain-of-function biological warfare research. The treaty demands that nations find these pathogens and then share them. It demands rapid vac- that rapid vaccine approach to pandemics. Um, it demands that nations cooperate with the WHO, that they ha- they will be monitored, they have to report back, and, and accountability by nations is required. So the, the treaty leaves some things to be figured out later. It's asking the nations to sign a treaty whose provisions are only partially defined, and the rest will be defined in the future. So that's a really bad idea. Nobody should go along with that. Um, the other thing is that these are in constant negotiation. So we're looking at the third and fourth versions of the treaty and the amendments to the international health regulations. But by the time the nations vote on these things, and they may not even vote, they may have a, a procedure where somebody bangs a gavel down and says no country or not enough countries have said no, so this now goes forward. That's what's going to happen next May. But if and the, and the idea was to do it so quietly that nobody would know what was going on. But now everyone who's listening to me knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so now it's your responsibility to tell everybody else you know and to demand from your congressmen, senators, your 
people at the local level, you know, your city councilors, your people at the state level, everybody needs to know that we're handing over, you know, the ability basically to wage biological warfare on us. This is a WHO. I mean, who wants that? Nobody who reads these documents wants that. Um, So we don't have final versions yet. If we exit the WHO, if we actually, if we have enough members of Congress to vote in favor of H.R. 79, you know, the United States will then exit the WHO, will not pay for it, and at least, you know, that method by which control is to be gained will be stopped. It doesn't mean that the globalists, the deep state, whatever, are going to stop trying to gain more control over us and gain more of our possession. But it means this method, which is the number one method that is being used today, will have been stopped. And it also means that people will come to understand what's going on, which is a soft coup. You know, the using public health and the fear of pandemics to gain much more power over people, uh, to control our movements, to control our money through, you know, we start with a vaccine passport and then electronic payment system is is built into the one that is that the the WHO is pushing out a vaccine passport right now that was developed by the EU, but it's asking it to be used by all nations around the world. And it includes a, so, you know, basically the bare bones of a social credit system like China's, which could be and probably, you know, probably is I can't guarantee that it was planned for the U.S., but it's likely. Um, okay, how does this relate to 9-11? The anthrax and the anthrax letters, we don't know where it came from. It was never, the, the origin of that was never found, but it was probably in a Western laboratory. Um, Bruce Ivins was not the perpetrator. No hard evidence was ever found of that. those particular anthrax samples were not found at Fort Detrick, were not found in his house or his car anywhere else. Um, and I, I do believe that the anthrax letters were sort of a dress rehearsal or a, maybe an act one rehearsal for what's going on now. They did lead to the PREP Act, the BioShield Act, the beginnings of well over $100 billion to be spent on biodefense, and much of that was actually spent on gain-of-function research or biological warfare research that we used to think was banned by treaty, but because that treaty contained no provisions to, to make sure countries didn't cheat, it's, it's been proven that both Russia, which was then the USSR, and the United States have cheated. So um, another thing that can be done is we could have a treaty that actually works where inspections could be undertaken punishments could be applied and we could ban the use of biological weapons. We could close down all the uh, high-level biodefense labs, potentially, which would, to a degree, reduce some medical research, but it's probably a reasonable price to pay to try to end the development of better and better biological weapons. Yeah, I think so. So we're, we're really up against the clock here, but I do want to sneak in a caller. We have Mohammed from New York. So sorry to be so uh, confined here in terms of time, but what do you have for us, Mohammed? 
Oh, good afternoon, Jeremiah. Good afternoon. Uh, I, I just wanted to make a comment around, and I'm going to be very brief about it. It's a program called What in the Cell is Going On. It come on Monday. And on the 5th of um, June, they had Dr. Rashid Batara, and he talked about a payload in those shots that have been given called the vaccines. And he said when they pull it off, it's going to kill a lot of people. I haven't heard anything about that because so long. Um, it's 6-5-2023 on what the sale is going on. Do you or the doctor know anything about that? Um, I do not, but I believe Dr. Buttar subsequently died. Yeah, unfortunately, he's deceased. There's a lot of strange things surrounding that. And a number of strange deaths, like uh, the president of Tanzania, who mysteriously died. And mm-hmm. uh, not to be conspiratorial, but it is strange in this atmosphere, you know, which is another thing I can't stand about the anti-conspiracy thing. It's like, well, do you expect people to not speculate about weird stuff? Um, but, yeah, we're pretty much out of time here. I want to wish my beautiful wife, Irina, happy birthday today. So, um I did not forget, Edina. You are the love of my life and the mother of my two beautiful children that, of course, we're so dedicated to. So going to have fun later in Harlem. But I want to thank you, Dr. Nass. It's been so enlightening. Um, I wish we had more time, frankly. And just thank you for your courage. Thank you for your clarity. And keep up the great work. We're supporting you. And, you know, we're, we're just very inspired by all that you have done. Hey, thank you so much. You have been a great um, interviewer, and I hope your audience likes you as much as I do. Well, thank you so, so much for that, Dr. Nass. And, yeah, we, we'll be in touch, I hope, because um, this struggle is an ongoing struggle, as we know. We'll have to roll up our sleeves. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just the first quarter, guys. I'm sorry. We're going to have to really hunker down here. Yeah, in fact, there's a demonstration in New York um, at the U.N. on Saturday protest yeah so we have to be visible we have to spread the word we have to share the information and we have to be courageous exactly thank you thank you doctor have a great day have a great weekend and a happy weekend to everyone out there the prn family Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on the baseline greatest audience in the world and uh, we have some really exciting guests coming up we have The great Steve Kirsch is going to be actually joining us on the last Friday of the month. And we'll have some other surprise guests in between. But please stay tuned. Please tell a friend. We are archived now, so that's really exciting. You can reach me at jeremiahhosea at gmail.com, J-E-R-E-M-I-A-H-H-O-S-E-A at gmail. You can reach me at uh, jeremiahhosea.com. Check out my music there. Oh, yeah, if you're a filmmaker, please let me do a score for you. I've done some scoring. Actually, something I produced wound up being um, on an Emmy-nominated soundtrack. So, um, you know, I'm a music person. I'm a producer. I'm a bass player. Please include me in your uh, production. And uh, looking forward to seeing you next Friday on The Baseline. Have a great weekend. Peace.